You are listening to the Enormo Cast. Is your relationship with your climbing shoes starting to feel like just a series of Netflix nights with carry out? Is the spark gone? Are the dreamy days of wistfully wondering if your shoes miss you when you can't be romping in the hills together faded away? Well, let the Sportiva theory put some big bang back in your life. Extreme sensitivity combined with high dynamism allows the theory to have unprecedented pedidexterity and reactivity on holds. Mmm, pedidexterity, dynamism, reactivity. Isn't that just what you've been secretly longing for? Do you really want to spend your sun-drenched days and climbing gym nights with a bored last and confining laces? Or with an aggressive and ultra-sensitive slipper that lets you really feel those holds you so lovingly caress every chance you get? Look, you and your old shoes can still be friends. Even meet up once in a while for a 5.9 Audible Air too. But the Sportiva Theory is going to fulfill your needs in a way that those old shoes just never could. So if you've lost that loving feeling, then reignite the passion with the Theory Climbing Shoe from Sportiva. Go to Sportiva.com or your favorite local shop to test the theory. Look, folks, I know you're saving up for that getaway to Spain, but your friends and family are going to think you're a total loser if you don't come up with at least a few gifts for the holidays. Hey, hey, enough with the sleigh bells. This year, maximize your gift-giving and holiday spending by supporting small businesses banging it out in the trenches. Entering Enormo at checkout gets you discounts at bonfirecoffee.com and peterwgilroy.com. And entering EnormaCast gets you a deal at BelaySpecs.com. And what's more, you'll be helping out a business so small, it's just a 5 foot 6 inch, 140 pound guy sitting at his desk in his living room, who may or may not be wearing pants. So happy holidays. And this year, don't be that dirtbag that only leaves rumpled sheets and a ring in your parents' bathtub. Cue the bells. We gotta get Listen, uh, uh, where are you playing in town? Are you playing here? We're doing the... Uh... The Normo Dome, whatever it is, it's terrific. Oh, it's yeah, big place. That's, it out. That's a big nice. place. You sold What's it that out. I'll say, you really should. Look, you better get up there before you panic. Those pens are loose. You're very good. I have really enjoyed having them with you. We'll make it. I don't think so. But we shall continue with style. Today's show is brought to you by Black Diamond Equipment with support from Maxim Ropes and the fine folks at La Sportiva. And now back to the show. Hello and welcome to the Enormacast. This is your host, Chris Kalous. It is December 1st, about 11 o'clock here in Colorado, and this is episode 209, I believe, of the EnormaCast, a conversation with Natalie Afonina, 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 let, let me have her say it. Natalia Petrovna Afonina. Who is a Russian cosmonaut that also happens to climb. No, that's not true. She's actually an ice climber who grew up right here in the United States of America, but happens to have Russian parents and has spent much of her youth in Russia learning to be Russian. 
which I think is a vastly different mode of operation than being American, which we'll get a hint of in this uh, this podcast. Those of you who pay attention to Instagram may know her as Nat Exploring on Instagram, uh, ice climbing and traveling and a bit of rock climbing in there as well, but, but primarily an ice climber. And uh, Natalie actually pitched herself to me years ago. We talk a bit about this in the interview, but she sent an email, very interesting email, that actually revolved quite a bit around her dad and talking about him and his and his uh, mountaineering career in the Soviet Union. And uh, yeah, it was pretty compelling. And we tried to uh, get this thing done in that NormaCast way of, you know, just, well, we'll see what happens. If you're coming through, give me a call. If I'm going to be around at some ice climbing festival, maybe you'll be there, that kind of thing. But it took took a few years. And actually, this is a face-to-face one. She did stop by the house on the way through from Indian Creek to Denver to catch a flight to Mexico. So face-to-face one right here in the EnormaCast studio, in the home studio, aka in this case my kitchen, where I frequently turn off the refrigerator and then forget to turn it back on and uh, find things melting and spoiling a, a day later. She happened to be here when my uh, significant other and the normal child was not here. So temporary bachelorhood just sends me back to those sort of forgetful things where my food is spoiling in a shut-off refrigerator. Of course, back in those days, my food spoiled in the refrigerator, whether it was on or off. Just, uh, just sat in there spoiling away as I shoved it out of the way to get more beer. And I wish I had something to tell you about, some some Black Thursdays or no Black Friday uh, sale or a Cyber Monday sale or any of these other things that, uh, that everybody uh, around these things kind of does. I don't have anything. I just got this podcast. It's on sale. Clearance, crazy prices, bottom of the barrel prices. This is all I'm, it's all I'm sending out there right now. Over at theenormacast.com, the shop is down. Everything is messed up with that. I, I just, you know, I couldn't keep up with it. And uh, yeah, so I'm not selling anything. If you want some stickers, you can still bug me about that. I'm going to try to get the uh, backlog out before Christmas. But yeah, there's no commerce going on at the Enormacast this Christmas season. Maybe that's refreshing to some of you. Certainly feels refreshing to me. If you're dying for a, a hat or a shirt, you can hit me up. I do have a few sitting here um, and we can come, you know, Come up with a deal on the internet. Send me some money. Maybe I'll send it to you. Maybe I won't. Who knows? Uh, that kind of thing. And then you can, uh, you know, report me to the FCC or the SEC or whoever deals with that sort of stuff. Okay. Since there's nothing going on, let's get to the interview. Yeah, Natalie showed up, sat down. Uh, I've been watching her kind of mostly just on the gram, you know, getting to know her on Instagram. But uh, the person that turned up isn't exactly the spitting image of the person I think that is uh, portrayed on the Instagram as as that will work out. And uh, we had a lot of fun talking. She actually came and spent the night and uh, we talked a lot the night before we even turned on the mics. And um, I got a little worried that maybe we'd, you know, kind of gotten through it all beforehand. And sometimes that can actually make an interview a little bit sort of a retread of things we'd already talked about more spontaneously, but that did not happen. Uh, Natalie has a great story, adventurous person, and quite an impressive level of motivation and determination. So hope you guys enjoy this one. Fun talk with Natalie Amphonina. No, Amphonina. I always want to put an N in there. A-N-F-O-N-I-N-A. 
Extra syllables, too, I think. Afonia, Afonia. Well, girls and boys, the sun's coming up later and later and the darkness is upon us. But cowpokes like us know that when the going gets cold and dark, we still get going with a double shot and a dawn patrol. That's right, up before the rooster's pecking and the cows are mooing, and out the door for those perfect turns or perfect conditions. And though most of us aren't galloping into the office anymore with hands chalky and our ski pants swishing, doesn't mean that your Dawn Patrol humble brag isn't just as effective when you're five minutes late to that Zoom call. Sorry, folks, you casually say, I'm just not myself if I don't get up at three in the morning and go send some sick shit while y'all are sleeping. Black Diamond is here to support your morning mania with equipment for the Dawn Patrol. Headlamps to light up the pre-dawn hours, the perfect layering systems to peel as you heat up and the sun finally does come up. Ski gear for the punch-drunk 4am skiers, climbing gear for the unrested and off-route climbers, and even bouldering pads, cause let's face it, you're gonna numb out and dry fire. So wake up, buckaroos, and though caffeine may seem like all you need, let Black Diamond supply all the gear you need to get up and get down on your next dawn patrol. Black Diamond is a proud sponsor of the Enorma Cast. So uh, say your name in Russian again, the whole thing. Yeah, it's Natalia Petrovna Afonina. And you in Russian is your first language, is what you just told me. It is. And you learned English starting when you came here at six? No, when I started first grade. Oh, first grade. So okay, we, so you left the, the household finally where exactly. everyone was speaking Russian. Yeah, but I'd spend like five months a year in Russia and then okay. the rest of the time going to school in the States. So uh-huh. that's why you can't hear an accent. Right. Oh, no accent. I wish I can't do a Russian accent. Really? Yeah, I can speak fluent Russian, fluent English, but I can't do an English accent in Russian. And I can't do a Russian accent in English. How does that serve you in your sort of everyday life, the, the Russian? Uh, I get to blend in pretty well when I travel abroad. So right. it's also very easy to get into all of the stand countries. So like Kyrgyzstan, Turkmenistan, Tajikistan you can just walk in without a visa, which is really nice. Also, like the Venn diagram overlap of countries that the U.S. passport gets me into and the Russian passport gets me into is pretty spanning the whole globe. Right. Because usually, you know, the countries that are buddy buddies with Russia typically are not with the U.S. Right, have a problem with U.S. visas and vice versa. Yeah, Like, I was able to get into Yemen for a month on my Russian passport. Uh Uh-huh. And you can't do that? Oh, no. No. No? No, The American American TSA, like... So what's your actual, like, citizenship? Dual citizen. Dual citizen. Although... Yeah, that's got to be handy. As I discovered this morning, my American passport expires in 38 days, so I better get on that. Yeah, you better be careful, too. They might kick you out, finally. No. (laughs) (laughs) It's a Russian asset. (laughs) Are you a member of the NRA by any chance? Uh, no, and I'm not a spy. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, yeah, but wouldn't a spy say they're not a spy? All right. Well, my defense for that is neither country would trust me, and the Russians would have killed me by now, mm-hmm. as uh, just in case. A little so. drop of plutonium in your in your coffee. Or yeah, whatever. probably with like an umbrella stick or something. Yeah. Probably an ice tool. Yeah, but again, this is all you know for plausible deniability at this mm-hmm. point. So now you're again on record with the Enormacast as not a spy, just in case they're listening. Exactly. Not a spy for either side or both sides, whatever. And not looking to be recruited. Just well, it's for interesting the because there, there. Well, there's actually literally cases where it's pretty evident that climbers were in fact spies. Um, there's I can't remember. It's some Himalayan story. I think P- Pete Takeda wrote a story about it 
Varrock and Ice years ago about a guy that was like transporting um, like these beacons and stuff. And uh, mm-hmm. Thor maybe was his name, Thor or something. But anyway, um, but then within like just lore, I mean, uh, I've had friends tell me like, yeah, we think he's a spy because he just like no one knows what he does. Speaks weird he, languages. He's, yeah, he's mm-hmm. hyper intellectual. This guy Shep Steiner, actually, which a few Canmore area people just like perked up. Um, yeah, all his friends were like, oh, yeah, Shep's a spy. But he was actually a college professor. And so there you go. It's just like, you know, Dr. Hemlock from uh, from the Iger Sanction <laughs> college professor. Um, Indiana Jones, not really a spy, but still right. like an alter ego college professor. So, Well, like I dropped out of my PhD, so I can't be a professor. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah you're done. So you, yeah, let's, um, so anyway, back to the Russia thing. Um, one of the ways in which we quote unquote met, and I'll, this might be embarrassing to you now because it was some years ago, but um, you sent me sort of a pitch about coming on the Enormacast, which which worked actually. It's just that we hadn't, this is the first time we've kind of gotten it done. We've talked about it for a few years, literally, like off and on. So, but uh, But the pitch had to do with your dad, actually. And, and getting and, someone's number, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, and, and um, but like, you know, this idea that uh, that that you grew up with this like hardcore Russian mountaineering and maybe spy dad. He's that, a scientist. Okay. Yeah. He's a just for an image. It he's a stoic Russian Soviet scientist who's missing the chunk of his nose because he froze it off for frostbite. Very intense personality. He's 63 and can still like has an eight pack swims every single morning at like 6 a.m. He drives to the Pacific Ocean in Seattle, even in the dead of winter, swims for 15 minutes, drinks a cup of coffee, comes back and goes to work. I'll never be as badass as him. Yeah. And that was kind of like your pitch. Like, yeah, this guy is like my genes, but I'll, I'll never live up to like his his stoicism and his uh yeah i mean it's just general toughness just the suffering is that like a thing the whole cold water like it, it seems like that's like a cold water immersion i yeah, mean now yeah. it's like all, all the hype but i i I think I mean, isn't it part of like those north, like all those northern countries, like health regimen is to shock your body with some cold water? Well, it feels on good. A day. Yeah, like when I was a kid, I would get. I remember this. I was like four years old. My mom would put me in the bathtub instead of a shower. You get take a bucket, and she would just like pour a bucket of cold water over my head in, in the mornings. <laughs> and yet, you seem like a relatively well-adjusted, <laughs> cheerful person. It seems like that might crush somebody. Uh, or even be, you know, it, I think it breeds bring I think, services to the house. So kid, what are we? What has been going on with your kid? I mean, kids are kids are very resilient, right. and I think the more different situations they expose them to, they right. bounce back. Right. Like there's this great book uh, called Anti Fragile. It's basically like a systems book about everything, and you can apply it to anything. Of if you keep something kind of sheltered and, and try to protect everything and snowplow all the obstacles out of the right. way. Uh, the kid's not going to be resilient. Like, yeah, you might within a very stable societal place, get them like higher up. But the kid, like if anything changes, the kid's fucked. Right. I don't know. That's yeah. that's how I think about parenting. I don't have kids, but right. it's how my little sister gets the brunt of it. All right. Oh, so you have a sister. I do. She's 10 years younger than me. Okay. And so that is that your only other sibling? That yeah. is, yeah, yeah and, I'm the oldest. And what do you think? How is she, you know, did she grow up as Russian as you did? Or was it more more kind of uh, mellowed out by then? I, 
no, very much more mellowed out and like kept close to home. My parents would send me to Russia for five months a year, just put me on a plane, sometimes with a stranger as like a six year old. And then my, you know, great aunts and uncles would pick me up and then we'd go live it up in some farms in southern Russia. Just like a whole gaggle of kids. We'd get up to no good, climb fences and steal peaches and almost drown in rivers and that yeah. sounds amazing, actually. It was a great. Yeah, it, was, yeah. it was like very Tom Sawyer, Huck Finn kind of like summers. It was great. And was that like a? I mean, was it to get keep your connection to that place? So was that on your parents' mind, or just get rid of you? Or uh, childcare is way cheaper right. when all you need to do is put them on a plane. Right. <laughs> it's like oh yeah, because we were living in Seattle, uh-huh. um, and my parents are both molecular biologists and scientists, and doing that full time and so so i mean we do have to spend some time on this because it was in your pitch um but we'll get to you as your own individual person <laughs> soon enough but um if your dad's 63 said then we're talking about probably coming over here still at the end of the cold war was he like a classic sort of defector kind of thing or was it all on the up and up in terms no of like, uh it, moved to yeah. Moved in the 90s when the when the oh, wall came down okay. so, you so you have, have all these brilliant yeah. scientists who you know capitalism is supposed to be reigning free but f- to set up a biotech ecosystem of private sector instead of just having the government pay for basic R&D um takes a lot of time and so right. you have all these you know PhD scientists in Russia in mean, Russia yeah, yeah. and so that w- there was a big brain drain in the 90s okay. uh where american companies just like handpick people and are like sure. come okay, over here yeah. to the promised land yeah, so in my head, yeah, he was pushed him up past the yeah. past the end of it. It would have been more of the eighties and late seventies that it would have been an actual. He would have had to actually like come over here and then you know disappear into a taxi and yeah, find, no, yeah, no, like no, the Russian athletes used to do and stuff. Yeah, but um, there's there's some crazy stories about how they would meet you know Americans and Europeans on glaciers in the Inolchek, like down in the Pamir Range, like Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan. And so the Russians, you know, everyone knows this, but like, yeah, the physicists worked for the space program and they would just like pilfer titanium, make all this titanium and metal. And they made all their own gear, like all their own sleeping bags, their own tents, et cetera. But something that was really hard to make were boots and ropes. So that's what that's the primary currency of what they would uh, trade their pitons and titanium shit and screws for was for ropes and boots. Yeah, that's funny because I I mean, having started climbing in the late 80s and early 90s, it was still like there was, you know, this titanium, like Russian or at least Soviet bloc, you know, Eastern European, like titanium stuff all over. And the joke was always that like it was semi-radioactive because it was like from a decommissioned like missile or something like that, you know? I mean, they're, they're not wrong. Like my dad was like, yeah, you know, the, the ice pitons screws, and the ice screws yeah. were really good. And he's like, ah, but the crampons were shit. Like he's like, yeah, they would bend. The metal was too soft. Right, so right. you didn't want titanium crampons. That no, didn't work. It's brittle too. So, mm-hmm. I mean, depending on what's happened to it to get it to in that shape as well. So, yeah. but yeah, I remember like lots of titanium pitons, uh, Ush, Ushba, is Ushba. That, are they still around? They are still around. That, that's Kinda. Czech, though, right? Yeah, or it's like maybe yeah, through, they have morphed, and I right. think like bought, and right. yeah, yeah. So yeah, yeah, the Ushba stuff. Now everyone climbs on Krukonogi picks from Russia. Oh, is that right? Yeah, they're the ones that like are purple and kind of look um, a little bit like a rooster's okay. top. Like they look ridiculous, but they're great for comps, like okay. for, for mixed comps and stuff. Why? Because they won't break. I think they're one of the few specially designed picks for uh, 
for comps. Okay. And the thing that blew my mind is I met, I was at the Bozeman Ice Fest last year and uh, a couple of reps from the Russian team were there at the Ice Fest. And it was one of the first, I mean, these are world champ ice climbing comp competitors. Mm -hmm. And one of them, I remember it was like their third time on a waterfall ice were gripped climbing water ice three leading because it was the first time in their life they'd ever actually climbed water ice. Right. Because they just train yeah. specifically for competitions. Right. Versus in America, we're just like, eh, you know, like climb a bunch in the mountains and occasionally do comps, but they. Yeah. You know, I mean, I think that's the same way with rock climbing up until the Olympics popped onto the radar. Like a lot of, a lot of our comp climbers were like, you know, comp climbing is this thing I do now. And then I climb mm -hmm. outside for the rest of the year. And then they're meeting the Japanese and these people who are just pure comp climbers. And of course, for the most part, getting beaten up on the comp scene because of it. But, you know, that's just like what's most important to you and what's not, I suppose. But uh, yeah, the, the whole comp ice thing, like, is it something that you do? Have you ever competed in a, in a comp? Not ice. It's actually just. What do you even call it? Because it's not even ice climbing, dry tooling. Or, dry tooling. Yeah. I, I have not. Uh, I haven't really lived in an area where I could train because I'm always on the go. And mm -hmm. I usually have a full-time job. And living in, I was living in San Francisco and there's, you need a training facility. Right. And nobody has the backyard to even set up like a little hangboard or anything. So In a place like San Francisco, yeah. A place like San Francisco, yeah. yeah. The space for your hangboard's worth like... Yeah, where everyone lives in a closet for, right? you know, $1,200 a month. You can't convert your closet into a climbing wall if you live in it. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty wild. Interestingly, that was like very early gym scene there in San Francisco, though, with Mission Cliffs. Lived behind it for nine months out of my minivan. Uh, right on. Yeah. Did you? Did, was it the same time when Libby Souter was living there? I don't know. I kind of kept to myself. I tried oh, to be okay. like as incognito as possible. Yeah. And I'd, you know, crawl out of my minivan, brush my teeth, bike to work. Right. Go have my, huh. you know, Yeah, well, she breakfast. lived in some shack, I think, there. Maybe it was a different gym. I don't know. Um, but same situation where she was just like trying to make ends meet in San Francisco. So sounds, I don't know, it sounds kind of miserable to me to be plopped down in there. Stuff That's why I moved. Squashed into that place with everybody else. Well, everyone talks about the great, amazing access. I'm like, no, the mountains are four and a half hours away. Mm -hmm. Like, I get more climbing in on one week of me visiting the valley right. on like a vacation than I do probably in like four months of living yeah, yeah. in the Bay no, that's doing absurd. that drive. And it's also like that's, you know, when there's not like the massive, I mean, you have to be in the weekend push into the mountains. It's the same living in the front range of Denver. Like Colorado's like, yeah, you know, you can get right into the mountains. Like, yeah, maybe 20 years ago. But now yeah. it's like there's stop and go traffic out of Denver Friday night and Sunday night, you know, coming back in or leaving and then coming back in. So that's why we live here on the Western Slope. So. Uh, well, it's also not really the kind of climbing that I enjoy the most. Mm -hmm. Like California just has way too good weather. Yeah. I need I need something that trains me a little bit better. Like I need some rain, some sleet, some glaciers, like a little bit more objective hazard, long bushwhacks. Right. Just so, why I'm in. Seattle now. Yeah, in Seattle. That's that. Yeah, you just made to order kind of thing, too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that access there is better. And like Salt Lake doesn't have that stuff, but that's truly another city where it's like, yeah, you can be in the mountains in 15 minutes, like for real, not not just in the brochure kind of thing. So, yeah, the ice doesn't come in as much. No, though. no, it's, it's a different, <laughs> it's a different climate there, too. So, <clears throat> nevertheless, so let's go back to dad real quick. Mm -hmm. Um, is that where you uh got your 
your sort of ideals about the mountains is from from him? Yeah. So I grew up with stories. What's his name, by the way? Yevgeny. Yevgeny. Perfect. Yevgeny. Yeah. Good Russian We'll post name. pictures. We can use yeah. those pictures you sent oh, me, absolutely. right? Yeah. We'll yeah, post yeah. pictures because the guy, it's quite a, he's quite a specimen, actually. <laughs> there's, uh, if there's... you think about like tough Russian mountaineers, like this dude would be in the encyclopedia of like, here's one. <laughs> it's, it's great, like introducing friends where I tell them, okay, when you come in, look them in the eye shake his hand firmly and he gives you a beer, take the beer. I don't care if you don't drink, right, you yeah. can dump it out yeah. in the flower pot. Like <laughs> it's very simple. Um, but I grew up on stories of, so he's a, he climbed every 7,000 meter peak um, in the Soviet union. So he's a, what they consider a snow leopard and uh, like just would go off on these two and a half, three month long sufferfest expeditions uh, during the summers and then do science in the rest of his time. And he really talked about the the camaraderie and like the the group dynamics. And it's much more of the era of siege style mountaineering where it's like, okay, they go out and they're going to go do, you know, put up a new line on Victory Peak, like Peak Pobeda, um, which is where he froze his nose off, actually. Uh, I always was attracted by like, polar explorers and like Jack London books and just Shackleton. And so this was kind of part of the awe was like, wow, like those, those were real men and women. Those were real stories. That was like, that's life. And I never thought that I'd be able to do it. I grew up ballroom dancing competitively from when I was four until I was 16, really? 12 years did competitive Latin in ballroom. Oh yeah. I can send you some photos. Awesome. <laughs> I, there's we'll feathers and rhinestones and like lots of makeup on like 12 year old me and four inch heels. And so that's what I was doing. Didn't really enjoy it. And then I was reading up on a bunch about like the Himalayas and he gave me the, these journals of these like Russian scientists that drifted in the Arctic and set up these drifting stations where they would like do science and they'd just like freeze themselves into the ice for the winter. And for six months, they'd literally drift around the Arctic Circle. And then get picked up and then, you know, polar bears would attack him. And then the ice sheet they chose would like splinter and they'd fall into the sea ice. And so anything like this just like totally captured my imagination. And so after high school, um, I went to college on the East Coast, New England, got a job working at the northernmost truck stop in Alaska or in the world, I guess, um, on the ice road and ended up taking a whole year off chasing adventure up there in the Brooks Range. Okay, so slow down. <laughs> So the the ballroom dancing is kind of interesting. <laughs> was that like, where was that? Where did that come from then? Uh, that comes from classic like Soviet upbringing right. uh, where as a four-year-old, I was enrolled in gymnastics, swim class, chess, drama, like all of the sports, figure skating, ballet. And they were all, somehow my mom in Seattle found all these like Russian coaches. They were never <laughs> Americans. They're all Russian coaches. And they'd be very straight up. It's like, yeah, this four-year-old has no aptitude for swimming. She just sinks. Right. No talent. And so out of all of the different disciplines, ballroom dancing was the one that I apparently as right. a four-year-old had the most aptitude for. Right. And so my mom was like, great, this is what she's going to focus on. Right. Because you have to be like, you have to excel at something. Exactly. It's not like this whole. Try I mean, this, the, try, try that. that and, oh, you're, you know, you're doing great all the time. Yeah, Everybody no participation loves, yeah, points. Yeah. Right, right. No, no, that's you're gonna, so you're awesome, going, You're going for gold. Yeah, I mean, well, that's where I think the pendulum right now is swinging back that direction in terms of uh, parenting and stuff of this idea of grit. And, and, uh, and, you know, I know it doesn't probably feel like it, but 
um, it's definitely st starting to swing back from the participation grade era, um, which is, I think we're seeing, seeing the effects of in our society. Um, but yeah, that's pretty wild. Like, and then you just like, you, you I imagine it's something you're, you had to do whether you liked it or not. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I liked it at the beginning cause it was just fun and I had friends and then it became competitive and sponsorships got involved and, uh, you know, championships. Oh yeah. The, the Japanese the Japanese sponsor a bunch of ballroom dancers. Really? Yeah, it's a huge part of their culture. I don't know why, but I had like a Japanese sponsor. I wonder what the ballroom dancing podcast world is like. There has to be some. There has to be one. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's a, hmm. Let's check it out. <laughs> or I could start the one. We could start one. You and I could start one. Start the ballroom dancing. Yeah. I mean, you could always fall back. I mean, they probably need uh, commentators too. You know? That's true. Yeah. So there's another career fallback for you <laughs> into that. Because the reason I think of that is because my friend Lisa Hathaway is a, is a former figure skater. There right? you go. And so, and then like as soon as the like figure skating championships or the Olympics pop up, it's like all of her social media feed is just uh, like arcane <laughs> talk about, you know, figure skating and all these sorts of things. So it's pretty hilarious. But. Do you, do you find it you still have an interest in ballroom dancing? Absolutely not. Do you dance <laughs> otherwise? Like, are you a dancer? Like, if if you're out and about and there's dancing, do you dance or is it like out of your life? Or are you like one of those piano players who are so well trained they can't like improvise? I'm exactly. You are so right. Well, because I also <laughs> my grandmother uh, was a classical pianist in Russia um, at the Conservatory of Music in Moscow. So guess who my piano teacher was when I was a kid? Was my grandmother. And so piano and ballroom dancing were the two uh, two main things that I did growing up. And ballroom uh, is very, in Latin, is very structured. Like right, I had a routine right, right. to this day it, with my eyes closed. You can wake me up in the middle of the night, put on some music. I can identify what dance it is and do it for you. But improvisation, <laughs> don't try I this. I wish you'd have told me that <laughs> <Yeah>. last night. <laughs> I just said like, tap, tap, tap. Like, <laughs> Put on some sambas, yeah, see what some... happens. <laughs> <laughs> but so, so the answer is no. The answer is no. Right, I, I, right, I have right. come around. I So when I was 16, uh, I remember I was in high school and I, what I really, really wanted to do more than anything in the world uh, was I really wanted to uh, cross-country ski and mm. race Nordic. Mm. I fell in love with it. My family always did it. And I love the snow. I love being outside. I love the endurance aspect of it. And I, that's all I want. Like for the last four years of me dancing, all I could think about was the fact that I wanted to ski. And so I finally quit just cold turkey, just dropped my part, my my dance partner. Um, and, and it's hard because like you don't want to let people down. And it, it's always, oh, till the next championship, mm -hmm. like just let him find another partner. And so you don't want to let the community down. It's kind of a little bit like climbing in, in a way, like you have a climbing partner, a dance partner, and it's a partnership. But I quit, cut my hair. Well, not quite as short as yours, but like, you know, pixie cut, right. refused to wear uh, a dress or heels up until prom, I think. Um, and then I swung a little bit more to like where I am now, which is much more like grew into my own shoes and like who I am, like my long hair and wear earrings and things. Um, but definitely went one way and then swung back a little bit. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's interesting because like, I mean, youth, uh, in particular type of youth has always been, I mean, these things exist, whether it's gymnastics or this ballroom dancing or it's. Uh, you know, figure skating or all these different things, particularly 
like uh, thrust on girls in a weird way. And and I've been talking about this for a while, but I I fear that climbing actually, you mm. know, is in in some places and for some people getting molded into that exact same thing of like you will climb and the same lure, right? Like the kids have fun with it. They think it's like just oh yeah, we get to go to the gym and be kids and goof around and then all of a sudden it's morphed into this like high stress and intense training and competitions and everything else. And I think a lot of those kids wake up and I know they do because I've talked to them even on the Normcast where they're wake up in a moment where they're just like, this is not for me anymore. This is like miserable. I'm miserable, you know, and, and some come back to it, but all of a sudden they're competing against their friends that yeah. they grew up with. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, interesting that you just put your foot down and split. So where did That's- it, that's that's a personality trait. Like yeah. once I know, once I make a decision in my brain that something needs to change, like work, like I'm not happy, I'm not interested no longer, within the next probably two months, I'm quit. I'm going to quit. It's really hard for me. to. It's a blessing and a curse. It's really hard for me to do things I don't want to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's good because it, it's pretty easy to live my life the way I want to live my life with not a lot of regrets. It's right. like, yeah, if I want to be doing something, I make it happen and I change my circumstances to, to accommodate. But- I mean, you can put up with, with, you know, not having material things for a while while you change streams or whatever. I mean, you're right now you're not working for the first time in a long time, you know, and, and we just talked about how it's like you have these, this skill set to just deal with either. Like I can work hard or I cannot, or I can live with nothing or I can have stuff, you know, it's like, doesn't really matter which one. And just being mindful about how you live your life. You know, people see my life. They're like, oh, she van lives and she travels a lot and she just climbs a lot and she, you know, does the work thing. And um, it all seems very much like I'm just floating through the world, but it's it's actually very controlled because mm-hmm. I'm a little bit of a control freak. And it was hard for me to just quit my job and not line up the next thing because uh, that's the kind of person I am. But I was thinking, I was like, well, if I'm 65, how much money would I pay for, you know, six months to a year of freedom and no responsibilities in the health and the body of a 29-year-old. Right. Priceless. Right. I was like, priceless. And so as soon as I, as soon as that kind of thought idea came through my brain, I was like, yeah, that the decision is clear. Um, time to go. Have some well, and you're, uh, I mean, what do we call robotics engineer? Yeah. Um, you code robots or, or are you actually like self-driving cars no i so i i manage teams uh i manage teams of engineers that that build robots and so i used to i used to code and and do that myself but i was a little too opinionated so (laughs) now now i'm usually in a bunch of meetings like stamping my my fist being like no this is not the right design spec tiny fist (laughs) well the the great thing the great thing about being a, a woman in robotics is that uh my my approach is a little bit more collaborative Mm -hmm. and where a meeting can be super tense and like people will yell at each other when I'm in the room, there's a little less yelling. Like I don't think anyone will look at me and be like, I'm going to yell at this chick. Right. So I I feel like I can get a lot done just by being rational, practical and like meet people at their level. But that's what I do. I, I, I'm I'm a total nerd. So like I work on autonomous systems. So self-driving cars is something I can talk about forever. The only material thing I really covet is a Cybertruck from Tesla. Right. Yeah. 
Wouldn't that be a rad like rig yeah. to live out of too? Yeah, wait wait a couple few years though. I know. So they get the kinks worked out, as you probably know. Yeah. Yes. Yes. <laughs> oh yeah. I, I interned at Tesla a long time ago. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting company to work for. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> uh, yeah. I'm lukewarm on the 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 sort of myth of Elon Musk, but He's done a lot for, for, I mean, I tell people like the only reason I work in the industry I work in is because I want a van that will, I will fall asleep at Indian Creek and it, I'll wake up, you know, in Cody, Wyoming. And it drove me there by itself. Like, I yeah. can't wait for that to happen because I hate driving on, like I just drove from Tahoe to Indian Creek and Nevada is just str- like, I'm pretty sure I could just fall asleep for an hour because it's perfectly straight. You're going mm-hmm. 80 and there's there's nothing it's right. just like a computer could easily do that a computer that i can tell you a computer is very good at <laughs> right navigating stop signs and snow in carbondale colorado right. yeah, yeah maybe not yeah, maybe we're not. still working on that but really what i i wanted to just point out the fact that that you know as a is an engineered mind person as a management person like what you said you can't just like cast off your your proclivities in terms of like planning and things like that my dad and I talk about this, like that life comes in stages. There's, you know, he says like, oh, you got a couple more years of wandering, but then, you know, you should, you should start thinking about set- settling down, Natalie. Uh, but yeah, they're like the life to explore and venture and be pretty selfish about right. the, your pursuits. And then you come to a point in your life when you realize that, you know, people and relationships um, and family and friends is what actually matters. Like I used to travel by myself all the time, right? just book a one-way flight somewhere random like Dushanbe, Tajikistan and just wander around for months. Uh, and now I really want to share those experiences with with friends. Like, and yeah, life changes. The things that you want change. Um, I'm really fortunate that I think this is part of the Soviet upbringing is where in Russia, even if you're an oligarch um, or in the Soviet Union, like wealth can be taken away. Material things can be taken away because things are so unstable that accumulating material things doesn't really work because it's here today. It's gone tomorrow. Mm-hmm. So the only thing you have are experiences and relationships. Um, and so that's kind of how I grew up is all of our vacations would be like, oh, we're going to go scuba diving, you know, off the coast of British Columbia. And we're going to go do here and we're going to go on backpacking trips and we're going to go, um, you know, my my parents both learned how to skydive. And so it was very experience based and less mat- like materials, material wealth um, based in terms of our values. I think that that really helps me because I, I really, I mean, apart from the cyber truck um, and maybe going to Mars, uh, I really don't don't need that much. And it's a very freeing place to come to where I, I really do feel like I, I'm very fortunate to work in an industry where I can provide more than enough for what I need. Mm-hmm. And then after that, I can just focus on, well, when all your material needs are provided for, what what do you want to be doing? And right. who do you want to be spending that time with? Right. Um. Well, when you going back to your your youth, um, when you jump ship on the on the dancing, and <laughs> I mean, it almost feels like you kind of joined Team Dad then. Yeah. <laughs> when did that actually happen? I mean, in terms of like, because you you've become you know this ice climber. That's kind of your main pursuit. You'll climb you'll climb mountains. You climb rock, but it's it's generally about the ice climbing as being this this focus. Like, tell me a little bit about the sort of transition to that, and and like I said, sort of joining team dad on the uh on the suffering and the outdoors kind of kind of vibe well there's definitely the the tremendous amount of respect that i had for for him and also the you know the kind of literary figures that i grew up with um where you you really want to be part of that 
tribe and that crew. But part of me always felt like, oh, I'm not, you know, good enough. I'm not strong enough. I don't have any of these skills. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember we'd carpool to, to school and I'd ask my dad about like climbing Rainier and like, what, you know, what systems do you use, et cetera. Um, but the big turning point for me came, I always wanted to go to the Himalayas. And so I worked in Alaska, saved up money at this truck stop uh, and flew to Kathmandu and just to backpack. It was, I remember it was in January. Um, I worked at an, yeah, I, I saved up money. I also worked at an oil rig camp in Alaska. That was, that was an interesting experience. Um, paid, right, hold re- on. paid really well. City of a thousand men in the <laughs> dead Arctic winter. Nice. Yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, when, yeah. When people ask me about like, so what's it like being a chick in the ice climbing world? I'm like, Try working on an oil rig as a 19-year-old. <laughs> Holy shit. How do, I mean, you just truck stop oil rig. I mean, you're... you're They're just looking for bodies. Well, like, I mean, bodies that are in, not crazy. You're in these... I mean, you're at Dartmouth or you're at... <laughs> yeah. I'm I mean, or they, they've got a big recruiting program there or what? Like, is there like a desk at, on the quad or some, there's somebody like, yeah, we got this job in a truck stop. Uh, we need somebody up up in Alaska like... I, so, so the thought process, I remember this. Could we have was, to, I mean, so we have to put a marker on this turning point you were getting into. Yep. Um, but I just can't let these things just wander <laughs> past the normal cast without yeah. getting into them. So marker is your turning point, but the oil rig and the truck stuff, just how did, just real quick, like what you were just like, I'm restless. I got to get out of here. Like I, all met- your friends at Dartmouth were, you know, had summer jobs at the country club or whatever. You're like, I'm going to a truck stop in Alaska. Peace. Yeah, exactly. Well, because my, my parents were, were great in that they said, you can go to any school that you want. We have no expectations. We have no idea how the American college system works. And you are, you put more than enough pressure on yourself. Right. Like my parents never looked at my report card ever. Right. Um, and They're so, like, yeah, it's fine. yeah, and they I'm like sure after after dan- dancing was the only <laughs> thing that I was ever kind of forced to do. Right. And then my mom always used to say, like, I've learned my lesson. I will never force you to do anything again. You are strong willed. You'll figure it out. Right. And so I'm like, hey, I want to go. I'm going to go get a job in Alaska because I didn't have any skills. <laughs> so I Googled Alaska summer jobs. And one of the top picks was like Arctic seasonal work. And I applied with no qualifications except for like, well, I sometimes cook dinner, you know, three times a week at my house. I know how to cook borscht. Um, and they interviewed me and and to Coldfoot, Alaska. They're like, sweet, we'll buy you a flight. We'll feed you. We'll clothe you, give you room and board, and you get paid. Right. I was like, wait, this is a much better deal like flipping burgers up in Alaska in the brooks in this town called Coldfoot compared to flipping burgers somewhere, you know, in Seattle, right. like McDonald's. That's so funny. And the guy like hung up the phone, like, we got one, we got one. Everybody's like, hey! <laughs> <laughs> it was, a, I mean, it's a crazy, but like Coldfoot is, it's known for being the coldest place in the United States. It's gotten down to negative 80 where fuel actually freezes. There's uh, it's a town of 28 people during the summer months. Right. Uh, and so I stayed through the through the summer and Alaskan summers are fantastic and there's, you know, there's grizzlies up in the Brooks Range are far north of Fairbanks, right? right. Like it's it's out there. Um, I had my full, there's sled dogs, there's miners, there's trappers, there's hunters. It's just like the, everything that you think about the West, you can find it there. Right. And then, you know, it was time for me to go back to school and they're like, you know, we're looking for people to work at like these, these camps. And from a young age, I always wanted to go to Antarctica and experience like polar night sure. and see like mentally how 
you know, there's all the stories about like guys getting hacked by ice axes in the middle over a game of chess because they're mentally they couldn't handle it. I was like, I wonder how I would do in Eternal mm-hmm. Night. Mm-hmm. This sounds like an adventure. Uh, and so I just told my dean, I was like, Hey, I'm not, I'm not gonna come back. I'm gonna like take a year off. She's right. like, Okay, sure. My parents too. I'm like, I'm gonna stay up here in Alaska. Uh, and so they just gave me a job. Once again, no qualifications. Um, I occasionally changed truck tires. It's funny because your dad was probably like, my work here is done. (laughs) (laughs) I've raised a daughter who wants to spend a night in the Arctic. (laughs) (laughs) Perhaps she too will lose her nose. Well, it's, you know, kind of bringing it back to today. Like now we have a really good relationship with my dad um, where it's like very much we've found common ground and mutual respect. Uh, And I asked him the question of, Hey, dad, like you used to go on all these big expeditions and um, he's like a very athletic, uh, disciplined man, but he doesn't do, you know, he'll run a Baker Rainier in a day because he doesn't think they're real mountains. They're like, yeah, volcanoes, not the real mountains. I'm like, dad, you can't say that. <laughs> uh, but he's like, well, well, for me, it was about the people. And, you know, he was like 35 when he stopped climbing like those big expeditions. He's like, well, a lot of people died. Um, and also a lot of people started getting families and kind of, you know, leaving the, leaving the group and the people that were left over, he's like, we were just kind of sad and we had other things going on. And now I just, you know, they're, they're beautiful mountains, but I'd much prefer to be with, with my friends and family down low. Um, and I remember he said one, one phrase that really stuck with me. Cause I was, I was sitting in the kitchen. He could tell I was a little sad and off and cause a friend had died and my dad's a man of very few words, um, not emotional, like classic Russian, not very emotional. But he said, well, you know, we, it's one of the reasons I stopped is we, we went there to go up for the summits, but we came back with body bags. I was like, well, that's real. Yeah. Um, but he, he understands where I come from uh, and he understands the risks that I take and the risks that I choose not to take. That the only thing my parents ever wish for me is for me to be happy. Uh, and to be content with my life. Like you're your own worst enemy, Natalie. Like, um, so they never, yeah, they support me in everything that I do. You know, I say, be safe. Right. Um, I mean, we're talking like type A. Me? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) No, not at all. all. Well, it's interesting because perceptive parents, you know, can... I think do get to a point because I taught high school um, and get to a point where they are like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like we want you to succeed because parents are supposed to do that. But mm-hmm. like we've got this person who's, you know, and I saw kids even just here in little Carbondale, like burn out, you know, like 17 year old. And especially and I think I've said it on here before, but um, I actually yeah, was with Angie Payne actually in, in her interview. because She's very similar that it's like a, it is definitely a a bit of a girl thing in terms of high school time of a, of a, of a pressurized burnout. And uh, yeah, so it's the perceptive that your parents and your mom and stuff were like, okay, you, we don't need to pressure you because you've got plenty, you know? So it was interesting. It was very much a take a step back, aim the cannon and she'll do, she'll take care of the rest. Right. Right. So the turning point, did we cover it? Did we actually round about, if we go back to that, you said... Oh, no, we didn't. Okay, cool. Uh, so I'm in... It's, you know, dark night, Alaska, Arctic, oil rig. And I'm like, well, what would I want to do with my year off? I'm like, well, 
Himalayas. I mean, I read, you know, the all of the alpinist books and this is before I climbed, right? I've never roped up. I didn't even know what a figure eight was, mm-hmm. but I read all those like books of mountaineering books, basically like we slogged and then we ate food and then our food ran out and it was very cold and we thought about food. Like that's that's essentially how I see those old school mountaineering books. But right. um I was like, I really want to go to the Himalayas and if I can get to the Pamir range where my dad like told stories of how they'd go out, just get just just getting to some of the places they had their expeditions was like a, you know, they take the Trans-Siberian Railroad and then they um, either like trek in for a couple weeks and then have some mules that drop them off somewhere like near the glacier and then they keep going. And um, and I remember him telling one story, he's like, yeah, there's this road in the Gorno-Badakhshansky region of Tajikistan where you're on this road and on one side there's a, and there's a river and you're in Tajikistan, but across the river is Afghanistan. And he's like, and all I could see is like this tiny little trail on the other side, on the Afghani side. Like here they had a nice road, like driving their Jeeps. And on the other side, there's just, you know, some Afghani locals with a couple camels. Um, and that something about like that part of the world, like the Middle East, Central Asia, like Silk Road, just like utterly captured my imagination. Um, I was like, okay, Himalayas, like people say you can just, you know, I was Googling all this, like you can just go to Nepal. So I just went there. Um booked a flight, showed up and trekked around by myself. On month two, I was in the uh, Kumbu region, trekking around, came in, coming down from a pass. And I hadn't spoken English for a while, apart from like, one room, please, you know, how much potatoes? Because I was getting pretty lonely at that point. Uh, and I, I come upon, I'm coming down and I remember this, there's this beautiful valley, like the Forsay Valley. And off to the right, I see ice falls and a bunch of ice climbers. Um, and I didn't know, even know that it was called ice climbing. Um, bunch of ice climbers. And right in the middle, there's this like big cauldron of ramen, like right in the middle of, of the trail. And there's this dude in a cowboy hat in a big puffy coat. And he's like, hi, do you want some ramen? And I'm like, yeah. I'm like, you're American. He's like, yeah. I'm like, where are you from? Montana. I'm like, oh my God. Uh, and he asked, where are you staying tonight? I'm like, I don't know, next next little tea house? And he's like, well, we rented out the whole guest house. You're more than welcome to stay with us. And I ended up spending three weeks with these guys. I'll kind of shortcut all of this, but um, turns out it was the North Face climbing team. I was going to um, say, it was the guy serving ramen, Conrad Anchor. It was, but I had no idea. <laughs> Are you kidding? I just made that up. No, I'm not kidding. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Did the cowboy hat give it away? <laughs> no, I just, I actually totally was making that up because I just had... I had an image of Conrad Anchor's side job as a as a ramen salesman in in uh, in Nepal. So I actually had no idea. I just totally pulled that out of my ass. So uh, well done. Anyway, so yeah, Conrad yeah. Anchor serving yeah. ramen in the middle of the trail. Of the trail, and it was you know I'm a backpacker. I've never climbed in my life, um, and I didn't know who these people were. Now I'm like, oh, like oh, wow, I was I was uh, in quite the crew. But they made me feel so incredibly welcome. You know, every evening they'd go out and climb and they were teaching the locals, you know, they explained their mission right, with the this, Kumba climbing uh, yeah, school. The Kum- yeah, right, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. That's awesome. Um, and there was a couple professors there from uh, Montana State, a chemical engineering professor. Because at this point, I decided I didn't want to study international relations and go be a diplomat. I decided I wanted to be a construction worker because in Alaska, I met a bunch of like oil rig construction workers. I was like, I want to build shit and make stuff in the world. Like, yeah, I was going to drop out of college. I like almost submitted my um, 
my letters of resignation, essentially, from Dartmouth. And uh, these two engineering profs, I, I wish I remembered their names, but um, they're like, you know, engineering is not just about like math and physics. It's right. also about building, building things. things. And so they're kind of responsible right. for me not dropping out of college. That's Thank good. you. So, so one little anecdote. It was the first time that I really felt like I wasn't a weird kid because I always felt like the outsider in the ballroom dancing world. I wasn't really into the dancing. And at school, I was always kind of the awkward, nerdy kid. And uh, and here, like, they thought it was completely normal that I was walking around in the kumbu by myself. They're like, yeah, rad, like, cool. I was like, I mean, and, you, and you're in that area and you've got like Ama de I remember looking at Ama de Bomb being like, I really want to climb that. And that's why I was like, I really want to like get into mountaineering. And they're like, you know, maybe you should try like technical climbing and you're going to school on the East Coast. There's actually great rock climbing and ice climbing. Like, and I bet you have a climbing gym, like when you go back to school, don't drop out. Uh, I bet you would really enjoy climbing. Uh, we exchanged books and I was reading, reading girl, the dragon and two for like the fourth time in a row. And I exchanged books with Conrad and in his book, he had a little bookmark, a little black and white photo of some mountains. And I asked him about, it. I was like, Oh, like here, here's your bookmark back. And he's like, Oh no, no, you can keep it. You can keep it. And on it, it's this, I remember it's this black and white photo, still have it. There's a little lightning bolt and a peace sign. He's like, the lightning bolt is how, you know, how high I got last time. And this is my white whale. And here's the peace sign. And that's how high, like the Japanese team got or something like that. And uh, I completely forgot about this. And then, you know, three years later, four years later, my friends, I'm at, I'm in school. I'm climbing at this point. I started climbing in the Adirondacks and trad climbing and ice climbing. And my friends are like, hey, there's a film showing. Um, do you want to go watch it? It's a rock climbing film. And I'm like, sure. Yeah. And like, like, it's got, we have free pizza. I'm like, done. Sold. Right. Can get me with the pizza. Uh, and we sit down and I'm like, oh, like by this point, I'm like, oh, that's who Conrad is. And like all these other folks are. And the film comes on and there's Conrad holding this black and white photo. And I'm like, that's, that's the photo. That's my bookmark. And the film is about Maru. Right. right. And so I met him, I think, the year before he climbed Maru successfully. Oh, right on. So like that was kind of the full circle story. And so you left the, you know, this experience with the, with the North Face people and the Kumbu uh, climbing school. That I wandered into. Right. That you wandered into. And then just like, it wasn't until four years later, you sort of connected the dots of who that all those people had been. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty wild. There's a, there's a great photo. (laughs) I mean, that's like, I mean, maybe, right? You, you, you were on your way to finding climbing, you know, again, because your dad, but, uh, but that's a pretty wild, you know, universe aligning moment. Um, pretty intense, actually. That's pretty wild. I just, well, that was the first time that someone told me that to climb these bigger mountains, it would be nice to have some technical skills right. versus before I really saw it as like, well, you know, when I move back to Seattle, I like get into mountaineering and be a mountaineer right. to go climb mountains like I'm a da bomb. And I really had my sights set on these like high altitude peaks because like, yeah, that's where, you know, men go to test their metal and women. And then I, I came away with it and I started doing more technical climbing and I didn't know what bolts were for a year, right. like climbing in the DAX. That's also, Eric Brooks, if you're listening to this, thank you so much for taking me under your wing. Um, he's someone who was a senior uh, at my college and taught me taught me how to climb right. completely from scratch. I showed up with shoes and a harness, and he drug me up like five, ten cracks in the middle of November in New England, climbing on like tricams and stoppers, from what I remember. And as you know, we all need that mentor. 
Uh, and so Eric well, you, was that person. The other thing me. I want to point out is the Dax just got mentioned. And so <laughs> you Dax people can leave me alone for now. <laughs> now I get a lot of people like, you got to check out the Dax, man. You got to talk to these guys that climb in the Dax. No one knows about the Dax. And it's like, part of me is like, well, let's, you know, careful what you wish for. Like, one of the reasons you like the Dax is because no one seems to know about the Dax. So let's, you know, yeah. not promote it too much. So anyway, Adirondacks. Ding. Ding. Check. Yeah. Check. Yeah. Uh, great for, and people are like, how would you get into ice climbing? Well, what else is there to do in New England in the winter? Right, like the right, rock right. gets cold. And then, yeah. And so I, um, my first time ice climbing, um, I actually, I was in Seattle for winter break. Mm-hmm. And I somehow got my hands on a free pair of tools and I hitchhiked out to Bozeman. And just like showed up at the parking lot in highlight. And some some guys took me under their wing and like I was like, I can belay. I'm a six pack. Can someone anybody want to take me ice climbing? And the rest was history. Yeah. Yeah. So. That's funny because it's exactly I think how Angela Van Weimer started ice climbing. <laughs> Hitching out to just showing up at a parking lot. <laughs> well, yeah, and you're a like literally mm. like you know. Yeah. And actually I think it was Scott who who was one of the guys that um that picked her up and said yeah we'll 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 show you around you know Damn. so um it's kind of I, I i we joked about it on there but i think it's a somewhat uniquely uh thing that a, a woman has probably had a lot easier oh, yeah. job and, and doing. hitchhiking with ice tools and ropes on a giant <laughs> backpack right. down the i-90 corridor <laughs> i get i oh, people are like how do you hitchhike i'm like Honestly, I get picked up by very concerned moms right. that like attempt to feed me and right. are very concerned and want me to call my parents and tell them. Yeah, I'm well, okay. that part of it, the hitchhiking <laughs> part of it, I think is definitely like, you know, a hell of a lot scarier for a woman in a lot of ways or a lot riskier. I mean, just statistically, it's a lot riskier. But then the I was talking about the hitchhiking <laughs> in the in the ice park or in the Highlight Canyon or whatever. That part of hitchhiking is yeah, not too hard to do not too hard yeah, yeah there yeah. there are some benefits to being a girl yeah, yeah. sometimes so mm-hmm. i mean if i was standing in the ura like with my you know helmet on crooked and a pair <laughs> of ice tools like dudes would just be like don't make eye contact with that guy like don't look at him <laughs> so. it's true i and i owe a lot to the people that you know took my took my un my gumby ass under the belt. Yeah, but it, I mean, to me your credit, shit. right? It, you still have to be, um, you know, once the the moment begins, you know, it's like you can't be an idiot and you and you have to know how to be a good partner even as a beginner. And you have to be, I mean, and you have a, you know, you have sort of this go for it attitude that um, I think pe- people, men and women you climb with probably recognize from the, from the beginning as being like, okay, well, this person is smart and she's ready to go. So we're not wasting our time here, so to speak. Yeah, you got to be a good. There, there's an art to being a good follower partner, right? Like right. If you can't climb the grade, you better be able to clean gear quickly and just get up there and at least not impede your partner. Right. Bring snacks. Bring snacks. Yeah. yeah. Meat sticks and cheese and like Oreos and like ice climb, like rock climbing. You can get away with eating, I don't know, like a banana the mm-hmm. entire day. Right. Ice climbing, I start the day off with like bacon and eggs and cheese. That's first breakfast. And then driving up, I'm eating second breakfast. And then throughout the whole day, I'm like drinking chocolate milk and like eating lots of food. Then you come back and eat pizza and beer. Yeah. I mean, it's a good life, right? Yeah. It's just the parts that are in in between that are miserable. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, but it's, but you know, it makes you feel so alive. Uh, You have a good day out in the mountains with your, with your partners. And it's just like, it's, it's real. 
I think that's one of the big reasons that I like I love Nordic skiing and being out. I just love like mountainscapes under snow and like kind of those Arctic polar regions. There's right. something about it that just screams home. It's probably right. the Russian, you know. Right. Uh and ice, like you get out there and it's like it's you in the mountains and it's just it's amazing. Yeah. So you gravitated towards technical ice climbing. Did. You know, and and have you yet to sort of make moves towards your, you know, Alma de Blom type dreams or anything like that? So I, I realized that I, I, I'm i not a summit bagger. Right. So um, my dad actually, he and I did Rainier together, okay. uh, which was great. Um, but I love the technical aspects of climbing. Uh, slogging to get to the top, I'm like, the view is not going to get any better. Like, we're just getting further off the ground. The mountains are getting smaller. Like, do we really need to do the last, like, 400 feet to get to the top? Mm-hmm. And I'm much more motivated by the movement and just, like, moving through the mountains. And also, altitude sucks. And it just takes so much time. Right. Um, and I realize, like, I can, I enjoy the, some of the, you know, the, I'll call it the suffering aspects of, of climbing that come with, uh, with technical climbing. But I enjoy it. And I mm-hmm. love it. Versus mount like pure kind of like slogging mountaineering. A, I'm kind of bored and everything kind of hurts, right. but I'm not enjoying myself. So I have this hypothesis that people separate themselves into uphill sport people and downhill sport people. So the downhill people are the ones that are like whitewater kayakers, downhill mountain bikers, skiers that huck off cliffs where like stuff comes at you and you have to react really quickly. Mm-hmm. And I just don't enjoy that at all. Like that adrenaline feeling, even if I'm competent, like I've gotten pretty decent decent at mount, mountain biking now. I just, I hate going down. I'd much rather just carry my bike down. Like, or if there was a lift or a zip line to come down, more than happy to take it. Uh, same thing with backcountry skiing. Like don't like no fall zones. I don't like going fast. Like I break because I want to be going slower. Right. Someone told me, gave me career advice in, in robotics. And they're like, well, choose a career where the dirty grunge work isn't that bad. You actually like kind of enjoy it. Because right. every job, no matter how illustrious, has that. Like if you're a photographer, there's the editing process, right? Um, and if you don't enjoy the editing process, you probably shouldn't be a photographer. Or at least you're not willing to, if you're not willing to deal with it. Same thing with like with ice climbing. I'm more than willing to go through the, the part like, yeah, getting the approaches and the descents and the being cold and the screaming barfies and like the technical and the scared part. That I enjoy. But in mountaineering, the equivalent of like slogging, kicking steps, your head is just pounding you can't sleep you're vomiting like i don't enjoy that i kind of like set my heights to i say like six thousand meters is technical peaks up to there i'm one of the main reasons i moved to the cascades was to develop to expose myself more to terrain that would prepare me for right slightly bigger ranges so there the slightly bigger ranges is still in the yes in the mix yeah like yeah i've been to the ruth gorge once uh-huh. um i really i was supposed to go uh this past april but you know, obviously it didn't happen. Like I said, I'm a control freak. I don't go like, yeah, I'm going to go to Pakistan and go set up some first descents on my first trip to the Karakoram. Right. It's like, no, no, no. If I'm going to go, I'm going to go with a partner that I have an established relationship with. Um, you go someplace, do a repeat route of something, mm-hmm. figure out where, what, how, and then you're setting yourself up for further success and like building on top of that, kind of like right. pyramid-like. Like people that find partners on mountain project to go do like the casino ridge on denali i'm like a you're Does that either- happen oh i i see it all the time really? like people looking for expedition partners on yeah on different forums and i'm like who who are these people and yeah, why that's fraught like, that's fraught with 
like disaster potential. Agreed. Right. Yeah. But I, I have my, you know, things that I I'm f- feel like I'm gradually filling out my my skills and like working my way up in a controlled fashion of mm-hmm. I'd obviously like to do some things in the Alaska range and have my sites a little bit. I, I love it comes with like the uh, the planning and the engineering is I am pretty good at the expedition planning. Right. And like logistics and execution and planning. Like my backpack, I lay everything out. I will have my toothbrush like cut in half and only the you know how many days of floss that i need i won't bring the whole thing and i bring these yeah I'm- okay so that actually <laughs> we we you, you know you just talked about mountain project being you know it's a weird thing to like get an expedition partner off of there but you're no no stranger to to you know what i call climbing with the rando and uh and using mountain project to to find partners because one thing we have to put in perspective is that up until recently, uh, you've spent a big part of your career, and I'm, you know, just your climbing career as a weekend warrior, as someone who had a real job with time off, but but a normal for the most part, go to work, come home kind of job during the week, and and so you've, and it's kind of it's super impressive, like what you've done as a weekend warrior. I think speaks to this in this like planning thing of like. You know, you're not just wishy-washy on Thursday like I am about, you know, who am I climbing with this week? And I don't know, figure out where we go. To, like, and that's the thing is you need to be like that if you're going to accomplish stuff on on a mm-hmm. weekend thing. So, but, you know, the partner thing is interesting because what you just said, I'm like, man, that could drive people fucking nuts. So, you have to find the right partners. And, and we always look at it from our perspective of like, well, I have to find the right person that's not psychotic or not whatever and it's hard to turn the mirror and be like well you know that person has to think about me in the same way you know and so there's an art form yeah there is you you know art form to partner finding but also like reading people i mean do you let me let me say this before we get into sort of reading people because this is a fascinating thing we talked about a bit last night that i have never done because you know i have this cadre of climbing partners now and they're pretty much the people I stick with. And I and you live in one place. Well, and I came into a place, I came into climbing in a time when you didn't have this internet resource to do this. Like, I joke that if you wanted to go to have a random partner in Moab, you would have had to literally walk around the streets or go like... Go to the base of Scarface. Yeah, or go sit in the rock shop. At that time was the only sort of mini half climbing shop and like wait around, which people did. You did network through those things, but it was a, it was a way different thing. So... Talk about that. And when you when you are evaluating a partner, are you also thinking about yourself as much of like, well, can I integrate with this person? Because if you've got like the full on wing in it by the seat of their pants person and you're there with your floss laid out, like, <laughs> I mean, in a lot of ways, Jordan Cannon, who hung out in Rifle here this summer, is a little bit the layout the floss thing, you know, and, and he I think he knows that that can like drive people nuts so anyway partner choosing and, and this idea of climbing with randos yeah th- th- there's a couple elements there's the how do you um we, i talked about kind of like the venn diagram of especially like orchard trips you've got you need people with the time you need people with the money they need to be people you're not going to murder right so you're compatible and there needs to be a skills compatibility um mm-hmm. there uh so that's kind of what you look for in a partner the don't want to murder them is the key one that's hard to assess but there's there's keys to positioning yourself as a good partner 
and making sure that the people that respond to your posts are the people you want to respond to your posts. And then there's the how do you evaluate someone once um, that you want to climb with. So evaluating it, I this is what I do is if there's someone posting a mountain project, I'll like look at their sentence structure, like, can they string two words together? Uh, I'm a little bit of a capitalization Nazi. Like if, you know, like every sentence begins with a lowercase and you got I's and you use you instead of Y-O-U, you're probably not going to like me too much. Um, Then I click into the profile and, you know, like some people like love Mount Prussia and do all their ticks. And so you can kind of see like, oh, you know, this person wants to climb the rostrum, but, uh, they said like, oh, five, eight, proud weed, you know, or five, nine, hung twice, need to come back and project it. Like probably there's some they're positioning themselves a little differently than right. what their actual skill set is. Right. Uh, and then if you can if they use their name, then you can go on like a full Internet stalking of, of them. And then uh, on Facebook forums, it's easier because if you have any mutual friends, I go the I do the backdoor reference and be like, hey, you know, Caloose. What do you think of this like Jordan guy? Right. Um, see, is he any good? Like what, you know, and, and people, and I'll say like, I'll keep it between us. You're like, just, how long of a piece of floss does he bring? Is it like ex- excessively long or is it just the right size? Well, <laughs> people can get along. So I, I, I did a, I did a last minute. I did a last. I've never heard of that, by the way. The preloaded floss pieces. Just me. So. <laughs> I mean, with that said, like even as sort of I think lazyish if that I kind of make myself seem, I actually have often been on expeditions where, um, not expeditions like we're talking about, but big trips where I am that person. That's that's like flossing. No, it just yeah, like but mentally, if you will, um, you know, I need some level of structure, and I've mm-hmm. I've definitely butted heads with people who are not like are totally winging it, you know, and, and the winging it, especially in a, in a foreign country gets under, gets under my skin. And, and I certainly get under their skin because I'm insisting that we have some reservations and some, like we talk to some people ahead of time and make sure we can get out of where we're going in and all those sorts of things. Cause that whole thing, like, yeah, it's like, yeah, we'll figure it out. I'm like, no, I think maybe we should just like figure it out now. So in two weeks we, you know, the truck shows up when we are out of food and we have to get out, you know, kind of thing. So, but so I, I'm not, I'm, I'm joking with you about the floss, but I'm also sympathetic. Yeah. I, well, it, for me, I think I'm pretty laid back in terms of, it depends on the objective. We always so, laid back. uh, for example, I, I went to the Canadian Rockies and got to climb a route called polar circus, uh, with, um, a partner that I'd met 48 hours beforehand. And for a route like that, that has been, I mean, I had polar circus on there on my little tick list. And I don't do tick lists, but it's just such a beautiful, beautiful line. And for me, I was like excited. It was going to be challenging, but like the right kind of challenging. But I wanted to set myself up for success. Like you don't want to be up there and then, you know, two pitches from the top have to bail because, you know, you're faffing around a little bit too much, didn't bring enough like tea or something or um, didn't time it quite right. Like, no, if, if I'm actually want to get an objective done and it's like either close to a limit or there's objective hazards or there's a time constraint. Yeah. I'm going to like control as many factors as I can and as many variables. If I'm just like rolling up to the valley to like go climbing, you know, I don't care if you bring like your giant non-ultralight cams and bring like 
fuzzy bunny slippers or, you know, a whole like 12 pack or something. It's whatever. So it, it right. needs to be commensurate with the, with the objective. Um, I you, do- you climb polar circus with a rando. Yeah. <laughs> uh, great, fantastic climbing well. partner. Okay. Cool. Uh, but still, it's just such a roll of the dice. Come I, on. I know. But I mean, is that still a big deal? In the, his milk in the, truck was very beautifully oh, that's built right, out. The milk truck guy. Yeah. Cool. Well, but is that like still a like a considered sort of a gnarly objective, or is well, it has it been pedestrianized like a lot of things that used to be sort of super sick? Because in my mind, I mean, that's been a climb that's you know popped up years and years for forever. It's like, yeah, this is like this thing, but is it not a big deal anymore, or what? I mean, not to diminish what you did. No, I don't think it's a big deal. <laughs> okay, okay. That, I mean, that, that's totally legit. And yeah. I'm so sure some people are like, well, wait so, a minute. It's a, a, it's a I'm be- just saying, like, on a yeah, kind yeah, of a yeah. sense, like, you know, if you want to go back into my freaking ice climbing career, the rigid designator in, in Vail was considered a test piece. And that mm-hmm. thing is like as pedestrian as it gets now. So stuff changes. And yes, you personally can find it challenging still. So, I mean, it's and not there's conditions. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. But so. no, I would say Polar Circus is very much a trade route. Okay. Uh, oh, that, that's a good way to put it. Is it a trade route? Yeah, yeah it's, a, okay. it's a beautiful trade route that is extremely okay. aesthetic. And it, right. that, that speaks to the kind of climbing I enjoy doing is right. I'm not much of a cragger. Like we talked about, it's like Joshua Tree yeah. just doesn't appeal to me that much. Or I, I love Bozeman Highway. I love you. But I, you know, Cody, the Bear Tooth, like bigger longer right. it's a bit more what i'm looking for like i i dry tool i've started dry tooling because there's not that much ice to climb and and the dry tooling really helps with the mixed and the mixed really helps you get up higher to the good to the good ice um but i really am, I, I don't enjoy like projecting dry tooling routes that are you know one pitch uh great training but it's just not doesn't get it doesn't have that sense of adventure for me right um but yeah polar circus was met matt we drove out in the milk truck woke up at 3 a.m. that the I remember posting about it because there was um it was a really warm season uh and there was a lot of avalanches um in the area and there's I think like a couple of deaths even that season. Um the thing with polar circus is objective hazard. It's not the climbing so that's hard. Above, there's there's above. there's a, a an avi slope that you need to cross halfway mm-hmm. through. Okay. It's a little spooky and there's like this little tree that's I don't know definitely smaller than my forearm as I'm looking down right now and my partner was like okay don't put me on belay uh but tie yourself to the tree in case this goes then like i won't take you out because that tree is definitely not going to hold us um and then at the top like above the the last pitch there's this big funnel that you have to watch out for for abby so our plan was very much okay we get in we watched the day before saw that the the sun hit the upper slope the upper Abbey slope around like 1130 AM. It's like, cool. We need to be off that slope by 11. So, and that was our turnaround point. Um, This is what I mean by like, you set yourself up for success, right? right? Like you, you make it happen. So like talking to you, it sounds like the draw has to do with atmosphere and quality versus difficulty. But are you someone that also is meanwhile pursuing your own kind of path towards like more difficult climbing? I mean, it's it's sort of integrated in the way everyone kind of climbs, but like how important is pushing yourself technically and in terms of difficulty? So I see it. There are some extremely aesthetic, beautiful routes that I want to do that uh, you want a margin of safety. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, for example, Sea of Vapors is on is on the you know on my list um, up in the Rockies and a couple routes in in Alaska and a couple 
couple things like in the Karafshin Valley or in the Pamirs like internationally that I'd love to go do. But there, the more proficient you are technically, right, the safer you are. And so for me, it's less about like, yeah, I really want to push the grade. But I think of it as, as a pyramid. Like if I, you know, if I can go from comfortably leading Water S5 to comfortably getting on sixes in like pretty much any condition, that means that any five route, whatever condition I find it in is going to be that much safer, easier in, in my control. Cause I'm a control right. freak. That's probably, I hate falling. I'm right. a horrible sport climber. I, I will sit there on the wall and yell and meow like a cat. And my partners will be like, just let go. And I'll be like, no, just, it's fine. Just fall. No. And I'm like one foot above my bolt. Right. Uh, well, I mean, technology has changed <laughs> a lot in ice climbing, but it's not, it's still in pure ice climbing, it's still a no falls ethic and mi- mixed. Like, yeah. yeah and I, so I think aside from maybe you're you you have this sort of global fear of falling <laughs> that applies to all your disciplines, but to to switch when cli- ice climbing is your main thing, and you're switching in a mix now. But l- up till this point, it's been just a lot of pure ice climbing. To switch into uh, a mode of like I can now fall, it's it's a big mental leap. Yeah, if that's every- the one thing that you've been doing. Not the other way around. And so I, I don't, I totally, I mean, I can, you can criticize yourself for being afraid of falling, but it's also a survival skill in terms of ice climbing because, I mean, you know, yeah, the screws are easier to place and they probably hold a little better than they used to, but it's still a freaking screw in ice. Yeah. And, it's, and you're still got pointy shit strapped to you. So mm-hmm. fall, taking like true big leader falls is still just not in the game plan, even to this day, even in, you know, 2020 uh, versus like 1993 four when I was ice climbing or whatever. It's the same. You know? Yeah. And I think it plays to my strengths where like, A, you just don't let go and you get it done. Right. Uh, there's there's no option to like, oh, take. It's like, A, if you all take, it's going to take your partner like 20 seconds to pull in the slack on the mm-hmm. double ropes because he's standing out there like blaying outside of the fall zone and probably was like drinking some thermos cup of tea or something. Right. And uh, you just don't do that. And I, I kind of like like, no, this is a this is the zone. This is these are the rules of engagement, mm-hmm. and yeah. you know what they are when well, you go it's, into it's, them. The other thing that's interesting, I think, and I've talked about this with sort of aid climbing, but a lot of other pursuits like like kayaking and stuff is that you know ice climbing is if you leave the mixed like the bolted mixed climbing out of out of the the conversation, like ice climbing is still a game that in a lot of ways, if it's more difficult, if the grade is higher, it's also more a more dangerous not always but way more so than rock climbing because rock climbing is in fact a lot of times the opposite like five fourteens are always i mean there's a hand literally like a handful of five fourteen x routes in the world most of them are set up to be extremely safe like i was just at indian creek right for the first time ever i was like this is this is my like trad climbing nirvana because i can just plug a cam and yeah you don't falls are clean and i can try it I was like, wow, I can actually climb pretty hard when I'm not afraid right. to fall because the falls are clean. And they're virtually, I mean, the the the, the truly like run out routes in Indian Creek are, I mean, the short list is super short and yep. you can just avoid them. And thousands, there's thousands of routes that are, you know, safer than any granite mm-hmm. or most granite trad climbs because you don't even have to cross over to another crack very often and yeah. stuff. But but yeah, so back to the ice climbing and your and your idea of this whole pyramid setup. I mean, that is a tradition, I think, in ice climbing that's been there since the beginning. It used to be in rock climbing as well, but then sport climbing in particular, but then in the gyms in particular, have, have made that fall away to where someone can 
you know, their first day out, if they want to try a 512, they may not get off the ground, but they can try it. But it's not like you can just, you know, get on lead and try a water ice six or whatever F it goes to. I mean, you can, but you're going to, it's going to be, you know, trouble. Well, the thing I like, there's certain things that I really love about ice is like, it's so technical Mm -hmm. Uh, and using your feet, like my buddy Aaron that I climb with and Cody a lot um, has been instrumental in like, be like, Natalie, remember the feet. And like, you can be on a straight water ice five pillar. There's always feet. You can either kick like there's, there's ways to make it uh, safer to climb, more comfortable to climb. um, And like it doesn't have you don't have to be gripped the whole time. It's right. like all about you know control and like reading the ice. Um, yes, you do have to be gripped all the time because what if the ice breaks? I'm just <laughs> you're, joking. You're holding on. To, a, you're yeah, holding yeah. on to jugs. No, but the thing you know? is, is that well, that's the thing. Well, I was thinking like that's what we make climbers, rock climbers, make fun of it. Yeah, we're like yeah, jugs and feet anywhere you want. Like how hard could it be? <laughs> oh, at least it's frozen and like like alpine rock where right. it's just choss and right, just rock right, like right. falling everywhere. Uh, but you you asked about like oh, are you trying to push your grade and. I think of it less as pushing my grade and more filling in all of the different skill sets that I need to go climb. Like I, I love the Alaska range right. and some of the routes just, or the Canadian Rockies from like the larger, uh, larger mountains there. Um, it's like, what, what do you need? Like you probably need some aid skills. Like I, no offense. I don't really like aid climbing. Like I'll do it. Why are you saying no offense to me? Or are you talking to listeners? Cause I don't care. <laughs> Have you not seen the aid rant? I have seen the aid rant, yeah. But I just, even like C2+, I find it to be a little scary. And just like, why do I have all this shit with me? I'm like, why am I even doing this? But it's it's really good practice, right? Mm -hmm. You need to know about like short fixing and like aiding. And like there there is an art form in in building up the skill set and just the experience base Mm -hmm. so that you can get yourself out of like shitty fucked up situations. Mm -hmm. Um, Like knowing how to place like finicky gear on weed mixed when your hands are cold and you're wearing these giant gloves and you can barely clip. If you practice that, you know, in sunny Yosemite, like it's going to make it easier. Same thing with like the Cascades. I've probably the only place so far that I've climbed where the approach is 7,000 feet of bushwhacking and then you get to do three pitches of rock right. <laughs> and then come down probably in the rain. Uh, but that level of like navigation and how do you read topo maps and just get yourself sure. like in the fog and shitty climates and et cetera. It's like... You, you you can push the grade. Like I definitely am getting um into like harder mixed and um training for for that and actually like getting myself to train on dry toe routes and getting comfortable holding certain positions and, and such. But it's all more in a pursuit of filling in the the skills gaps that you need for being safe in the mountains. Right. How are you with risk and and um it's easy to blithely talk about how you know, if I just have it all under control, it's totally safe. But we also know that it's not totally safe. And ice climbing in particular, because of objective dangers, and also, again, pushing the level, you get into thin things that crack and break off. And, you know, it's just part of the game at the high level of the sport. I used to be like, yeah, I'm just an ice climber. In the last couple of years, I'm, no, the the kind of routes that I love to, I I love multi-pitch things. Mm -hmm. And so, Nick's now that I've become a lot more comfortable on that type of terrain, just has opened up so much climbing where I I now prefer something that has a little bit of technical mixed and then like some ice and then it's like some snow slopes and then we get up and then we, you know, 2000 feet later, we're hitting the rim somewhere in like Cody uh, and you just like look out and then you have to get down. And that's like a full mountain adventure. And that's like what I really enjoy. And I've, I feel like I've built up the skills to be pretty competent um, in that type of terrain. I remember 
I was <laughs> standing in my kitchen in San Francisco, uh, looking at some some roots with pretty significant like Ciroc, uh objective hazard, and I couldn't get them out of my my brain. Um, and I was like, I remember thinking like, what what is wrong with me that I want to climb these roots? Where you you get to a point like I think. There's you start out climbing, you're like, oh my God, everything's scary. And then you get to this like happy place where you're completely ignorant and people tell you you can, you know, minimize all of the risk and it's totally safe. And like places like there are ice climbing areas that, you know, like right, like you can you can ice climb completely safely. Uh, but then you start realizing that to climb some of these more aesthetic, bigger routes, there's risk you can't mitigate. And so and maybe that comes with experience, age, uh, close calls, you know partners or just like being being familiar with with other people's experiences and, and and when people die and you kind of uh and then people close to you do where they're no longer people that you can explain away like oh i would never do that right. but you start seeing yourself it's like oh my god she was also a you know a scientist with a russian background living in california and you know foot slipped and she died and so you start kind of seeing yourself like oh shit like no, th- these are things that can happen to you. And like, really, for me, it's like not just intellectually understanding it, but really internalizing mm-hmm. that. And that came to me, I think, about three to four years ago when when um, a lot of people in my life um, passed away. Uh, and I realized like, oh, oh, I'm not invincible. Like mm-hmm. that invincibility feeling went away. And I'm really happy that I call it like you need to survive your 20s. Right. right. Um, and I'm almost I'm almost out of my 20s uh, where you get to a point where. I think you you become very measured about and you ex- mindful of the risk that you're accepting instead of being like, oh, it's all going to be fine. It's like, no, no. OK, we we are accepting a certain amount of risk there. They're, you know, our Ciracs or something could fall um, and there's acceptable risk and unacceptable risk. And is it worth it? And sometimes it's worth it. And you need to live with yourself uh, with that. It's clearly like that. We make that calculation of it being worth it. I mean, especially mm-hmm. in the Alpine. Would you consider your threshold high or are you probably normal? Are you a scary cat in terms of the community or? I I think I'm normal to middle where I'll, I'll ex- you know, a rock climber looks at what I do and thinks I'm crazy. But I'm like, no, are you kidding? Like if you look at the, the people that I most admire in my sport, like the ones that are pushing the new lines and like, especially anybody that goes to the bigger, wider ranges and establishes anything new. I'm just like, holy shit, like that. That is real. Like those are the mm-hmm. people that, you know, I don't get starry eyed about people in the community. It's like climbing's climbing. Everyone's human. Everyone, you know, has to shit in a poop bag. Like, but there are people that I really admire because th- those are true artists. But the risk that they accept, you know, I'm not going to go on a 7,000 meter face and establish a new route. That right. That is above my personal risk threshold. And I probably wouldn't enjoy it. Um, yeah. And your misery threshold too. And my misery yeah. threshold. Yeah. Which is weird, you know, because it's the same thing in a way because you, you know, you talked about t- being, you know, wanting to be before you tackle something that's, you know, at your limit, you want to be prepared. I mean, people who go on these climbs and and the misery becomes this giant distraction. It's like it becomes more dangerous. Like you have to be operating in a place where you're willing to not just willing, but you're able to operate through that misery. And the misery can definitely become the thing that ruins the trip and 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 puts you in danger. You know, because the misery can mean that you're moving slower, you know, or you're not willing to get up and get out of the tent fast enough in the morning and all these sorts of things. Because that's always the thing I think about, like, oh, I'm at 7,000 feet and I'm in my sleeping bag and I'm reasonably comfortable and like, 
suddenly the sun comes up and I got to pull my boots on like, fuck that. I'm never going to be that guy. I'm going to stay in bed, you know? And it's like, you can't stay in bed at 7,000 feet because you have to go further. You know, you have to get up and be to that slope before the sun hits it mm -hmm. and shit. And I would be that guy where somebody would be out there stamping their feet in, in the, on the ledge. And I'm still like in there, like trying to freaking, you know, keep my fingers warm or whatever so i would be a risk because the misery would be too much for me well, well there's misery but there's also the ability to deal with uh stressful situations or when shit hits the fan right and i think that's you know i've been called a robot before um in terms of my emotional responses uh but i think that <laughs> by a boyfriend maybe it sounds uh, like yeah. <laughs> anyway, continue on go ahead <laughs> I, I compartmentalize pretty well. Okay. Like if, if something's if something is happening, I can lay it away and very practically lay out what the next steps are, what are the plans, right. and execute. And I think that's one of my strong suits. It's it's one of the reasons I like expeditions. Is where like I was just in the Aragach uh, this summer in the Brooks, and like we had to bushwhack for forever with heavy packs, and you know I had a couple partners that didn't lay out their floss and brought like a 12 pound tent and you know giant things of toothpaste and etc and so and all of our climbing gear and you're just like you know you just got to go and kind of we're a bit low on food you just got to do it when when things are you know if your rope gets stuck and you're high on a wall like what do you do like people people that are irrational or start freaking out are people that i get very anxious climbing with i, I sure. those are not the climbing part i tend to go for like Spang, one of my uh, former housemates, really good friend, is an amazing partner because cool as a cucumber under any situation. Mm -hmm. And she knows that uh, we don't have the luxury or the option to freak out right now. We just need to get it done and get ourselves off the mountain or get ourselves up and down. But I think the, the most important part about climbing is, uh, you know, when people talk about risk and like, are you pushing your grade? It's like being extremely honest with yourself about why you're doing something and making sure you do it for yourself. And no one else. Because I'm one of those people. I'm achievement oriented. As I said, I'm very type A. Um, I call them, you know, by outward outward metrics of societal success, I tick the boxes in terms of colleges and achievements and merits and careers, et cetera. And one of the lessons that I learned from dancing and then um, I, I ran cross country in high school and w was innately talented with it and, and was asked to run in college. And I remember going to preseason practice and coaches telling me what to do basically and what to eat and like when when I had free time and I, and I was like no I not again I don't want something that I love to do which was just like running in the mountains or dancing or skiing to be taken away by me by by other people starting to dictate it and I fall into that so easily because there's you know achievements and goals and you you get patted on the back and be like good job girl like when you when you make it and so with climbing I was so adamant about like no this is mine this is my thing I'm not gonna let other people take it away from me it's probably one of the reasons that I haven't really delved into like comp climbing. I, I would like to do some comps in the future. I think it'd be really fun to actually train and see how strong I could get. But in climbing, it's like, okay, I'm going to do the routes that I want to do. I'm going to climb with the people that I want to climb with. And I'm going to take the risks that I feel comfortable with taking. And I'm not going to do it, you know, for the social media post or to be like, yeah, I sent this route or like, yeah, I pushed my grade. Everything is terminal on the, we're all we all have a terminal diagnosis. We're all going to die. One of the main things that I work in robotics on was uh, simulation technology for self-driving cars. So basically, I watched real data coming in of crashes, simulated crashes, real world like car crashes and 
vehicular pedestrian crashes, bicycles, and you just you look at the statistics, you know, like 30,000 people a year in the US die, like the the economic tolls just like, yeah, any one of us could be hit by a drunk driver tomorrow. Any one of us could skid off the road. So make sure that you live a, you know, a full mindful life. Try not to regret too much stuff. Just do it for yourself because if you do it for someone else, then you just become like sad and depressed and then you have, you know, come to Jesus moment later on in your life and you're like, what have I been doing living it for someone else? And just that's what I mean by like realigning. Like if I feel like I should be doing something else and I feel it in my core, I'll change my life to to make it happen. All right, folks, thanks for listening. And thanks to Natalie for sitting down, stopping by. This is actually a pretty good halfway spot between Indian Creek and the Front Range and Denver, which is where she was headed. Unfortunately, the next day it turned into a pretty good early winter storm up in the Rockies. And I think it took her like 10 hours to get from here to to Denver and catch her plane. But luckily, she had plenty of time um, because normally it's like three, three and a half. So (laughs) she kind of got hosed. But I hope it was worth it, and I think it was for us. Quick note as we go out is that I am on the Nugget podcast. Uh, it just came out a couple days ago, and you guys should check it out. It's about me. I know you think I talked about myself a ton on here, and I probably do. But uh, Stephen over there at the Nugget wanted to focus on my climbing career, and there's a lot of stuff I uh, probably never really heard about that we talk about on there. I also attempt to destroy my credibility completely. In a couple spots, and uh, we had a good time doing that. Steven over at the Nuggets, banging him out one a week, which is incredible, and he's doing a great job. And uh, I really enjoyed hanging out with him a bit while he was here climbing and rifle and uh, doing that podcast. So can't get enough Calouse. There's a bunch over there for you. Hate listen if you have to. Okay, folks, it is the holidays. The holiday cheer is it cheerful for everybody? Eh, maybe, maybe not. It is the dark time? So. Don't forget to check your knot, but also reach out. Reach out to your friends. Check their knot remotely by giving them a call. Get them on the Zoom. Make sure everybody's cool. We'll talk again before the new year. Mm-hmm.